I hope you're all staying safe out there. The apocalypse has come. This is our last broadcast. President Trump has been arraigned and the world may come to an end today. <laughs> Welcome back to the Liberty Portal podcast. I am your host and producer, Joe Sheehan. And with me, I have a special cast of characters, including David Rand. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, everybody. David Rand here. You can find me on Twitter at Liberty Rand. And today, a very special guest, Russell Herbst, brother of David Rand. How are you, David? Uh, Russell, whoever you are. <laughs> good, good, good. Good. We're going to get more into you. We're going to get more out of you, but we'll, we'll move on for now. Kyle, what's up, dude? Hey, Captain Quigley on Twitter. I am here sharing a spot with uh, Russell here. But uh, yeah, what's up, everybody? Getting cozy over there. Evan, on the ones and twos, thank you for doing the hard work, sir. Well, so uh, the former president of the United States has been arraigned today in court over the documents he took from the White House, and um, that literally just happened today. So what do we know about it at this point? Well, we know the the law it was under is the 1913 Espionage Act, which uh, I would really love my esteemed colleague slash brother to give us some maybe some context for. It might be interesting if you know anything about it. Not a ton, actually. Um, uh, Russell's a history teacher. <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. Uh, not a ton. Uh, the The reality is is that uh, you know any type of federal law can always apply if you want to make it apply, right? And so the the reality is, it has to do with secret information. So I mean, there's a billion different things that you could have made this function to. It's just whether or not they chose to do that. Mm. So uh, the actual origins of something like that. I mean, you know, World War One. You're talking about um, the creation of the FBI in itself, right? To find anti-war or anti the reasons why the United States went into war um, and, uh, you know, people and, you know, uh, you know, push them into the outskirts of American society so that they, they can no longer have a voice. Um, and so, you know, I mean, the origins of this are ironic, at least, because, I mean, that's the origins of the FBI and then kind of the predecessor to the cia i mean that's more of world war ii but i mean yeah so i mean that's pretty ironic in itself it totally is that's that's wild that i mean that we're now finding ourselves where we are um well it's important to note too that uh, i mean for example snowden is being pursued under the same act right uh chelsea manning same story all, all of the different you know leakers to these other acts you know these other people that have been very important in the history of the united states when it comes to the intelligence community understanding what our military is doing in the past uh decade two decades have all been prosecuted under this 1913 espionage act so the uh the, the implication here is what well, was interesting beyond just the fact that a former president and current candidate for president whom is supposed to have special privileges on their free speech rights uh, in isn't immune from laws, obviously, and we wouldn't want that, but is being prosecuted on this, especially given the context that both Hillary Clinton and Biden have both been found to have secret documents held at their private residences. In Hillary's case, this was the trove of emails on a hard drive, right? Mm -hmm. And in Biden's case, it was the, the documents in his Corvette or adjacent to his Corvette in his garage and, right. and other places in Delaware and offices. Even worse, Hillary Clinton's emails were, were acquired by the Russians, were they really? Yeah, right. So it, at least that's that. That's the current theory of how WikiLeaks got them was through oh. was through that. So the yes, <laughs> but her emails, right? Hillary Clinton releases this tweet in response uh, to the arraignment today. 
So really what she's saying is... Which is a throwback. I'm she did this before, too. But yeah. you're not. Haha. Yeah, right. Well, well it, it's supposed to be pointing out the hip, like hypocrisy that you know Trump was like a jailer up, and that was like a whole thing during the 2016 right. election. But it's also... I think there's also another way to read it, which would be that as well, right? Well, I mean, the irony here is that her infraction was actually far worse because it actually fell into the hands of a foreign adversary from the perspective of the intelligence state. Yet she does not get prosecuted, and Trump does. I think the important thing to note is that her hat swag game is worse than Trump's. <laughs> yeah, mean, they got to do better. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, you can say what you want to say about Trump. He has that old school sailor captain hat, trucker hat thing going on. That's just, I mean, that's just bad. That's this, Photoshop, though, right? I'm that's pre- like I'm her pretty sure in the so 90s. It's got to be. She's, she's but, but, yeah, but she's, why are you like that? This <laughs> yeah, but but the hat is real. Oh. Like the hat is. You can buy the hat. You no, know, this is this is an advertisement. Please buy like they're the selling right the hat. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, right. and, and it was like a year ago when, when she put out the same tweet. Like huh. it was the same thing. So I agree with a lot of other people in that I choose my presence based on the swag. So, um, you know. Like just, a good history teacher should. <laughs> <laughs> Who has the best swag of, of U.S. presidents? Oh, I mean, the only one that's got any merch at all is Trump. I mean. And I didn't vote Wait, for it. Wait, you didn't get Bush Reagan, that, that T-shirt, when they uh, got up there? And remember uh, Jeb, he like opens it up. He's like, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's Remember weird. that? Yeah, yeah was, I do. Great, I, I kind of forgot about that. Yeah. Sorry true. to bring it back up. I know it's a hard memory for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all right. I mean, I thought, I thought Obama really started the like contemporary marketing game amongst presidential candidates. Like, because he had, um, wasn't it Shepard Ferry, Obey, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty sure that was his brand design the like hope poster hope, yeah you know and that was like i mean a cultural icon for that's years, true right everywhere but six shirts i don't think so i mean you know at least the 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 mega hat is like i think that's more of an icon by this point like more oh. people remember will remember that forever than the like hope and change poster the rage stuff. it builds in people is amazing it's uh, well at well. my school uh four years ago it was under discussion in our handbook to be banned with the Confederate flag because of the angst it brought in people. It wasn't of that it did anything. It was the reaction that it caused. That they're like Confederate flag, which by the way, slavery, and then Trump's red hat. <laughs> Tax cuts and jobs act. <laughs> just, just like, the only accomplishment no, uh, over four years. Russian asset. Yeah. Oh, right. 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 Is it red for a reason? <laughs> Republican Party, red. Russia, red. Red communism. Communists. Mm, wow. Commies, dude. It's quite the correlation there. Get some string in here. <laughs> we're over here with a whiteboard back here on our side of the Doing table like Glenn Beck style over here just like oh my god Man. those were the best back in the day <laughs> just asking questions um, <laughs> wow yeah so I mean the, the what does this mean when it comes to the law right if you have a presidential candidate who has done something that two other presidential candidates have done um, additionally to that with Biden currently facing potential issues with the Burisma story and the Senate campaign or the Senate um, judiciary chairman with a new potential, what I hear is 17 hours of leak of potential evidence in form of phone calls that were recorded by the Burisma executives, you know, recording Biden potentially taking bribes. That is a lot going on when it comes to the justice system. And the question is for the American people, 
what does the law mean? And if it does it apply to everyone? Like the idea of a republic, the core idea of a republic is that the law is above the politicians. There's no king that sits above the law, that the politicians make the law and are then subject to it. And so if it applies to you and me, Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden, and it applies to Trump apparently because he has the wrong think, but not to certain other groups of people, what does that mean? I think it's, it seems pretty obvious to me what it means, and that is that certain classes or individuals of people within the United States are protected, are, are not investigated, and you have to ask yourself why. You know, I think it's probably a bit of a trope at this point that the right seems to think that the entire intelligence state kind of works for the Democrats. We've discussed this before, but at this point, there's a bit of evidence to suggest that. But it's it depends on the type. Like, it's it's not a Republican-Democrat thing. Like, there's plenty of people on the Republican side that also get the the kid gloves, right? Like, it's the neocon establishment types, right? They Fair. also get that. And there's a ton, ton of people on the left that were also getting banned from Twitter and getting banned from all these, all these places. And it's usually the ones that go against the intelligence state. It's usually the ones that are anti-war. Like, those are the ones that tend to get this uh, terrible treatment. So they, like... When people divide it with it's like, okay, are you team red or team blue? Like that's, you're not getting the entire picture here of what's going on with who gets the kid gloves and who doesn't. Right. I think Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger are good examples of that, right? Because they're, you know, self-avowed lifelong Democrats. And, you know, Michael Schellenberger was an environmental activist. He was, you know, worked for Soros for years. Uh, Matt Taibbi wrote a book like called like Clown President that was just dissing Trump. Right. <laughs> like and like yet, he's not like a Trump supporter. Right. And they're dragged before Congress and threatened. And the IRS visits, you know, Taibbi's home after their testimony in front of Congress. So you're right. I think you're right. It's not a right versus left paradigm so much as it is a are you are you with the establishment or are you not with the establishment? kind of division yeah it's it's in some ways it might be like new aristocracy versus old aristocracy is like there's a new aristocracy that's being formed right now and you got to stamp out that so that we can maintain power like i I think it's i think that's generally the more the way to look at it right now and you're you're seeing kind of the new aristocracy starting to rise up you have like these new figures coming up and some of them are people from the old that have kind of defected and those people might be trump or rfk jr but then we have these tucker carlson's kind of like a yeah like that he comes from that history but then you have like these new figures these new influencers these new politicians that are on the rise as well and you know they're getting all the all the treatment Mm -hmm. if you are a small business owner looking for exponential growth you have to connect with adam thune at intellectual patriots he will revolutionize your business game and help you get to the next level adam can streamline your business practices and advertising strategies to improve your bottom line. His expertise in data engineering means he can build you the systems you need to collect and analyze market data. His mission is to provide you with invaluable insights to fuel your success. From grant writing and business proposals to digital systems integrations, even AI management, Intellectual Patriots is a one-stop shop for cutting-edge solutions. Don't wait another second. Visit intelpatriots.com to learn more. That's I-N-T-E-L patriots.com. How, how else would you characterize the new aristocracy idea? Because I think that you're you're right about that. I think there is this new wave of people who are becoming influential that is probably much to the chagrin of the existing establishment in media and politics, industry, et cetera. How, what are the other parameters there? Like who else is included in that list, if you can think of any? Um. I think Elon Musk is doing is is somebody kind of in the corporate world that's trying to elevate a lot of new aristocracy folks. Um, I think that's what a lot of the Twitter stuff was. 
Um, I think you're seeing the rise of new influencers with kind of new think that are kind of, you're not supposed to talk about, you know, people, you know, like this might be kind of a, a weird, a weird one to put in here, but people like the Andrew Tate moment, you know, that's kind of like a new wave of thinking or old, old wave that's become new, but it's kind of like, you got to shut him up because he's, he's doing all these things that are going against the norms of the old, of the new or the old aristocracy. Um, I think guys like Vivek Ramaswamy's are probably are going to be on the rise figures. I don't think he's going to, his presidential campaign is going to really go anywhere this go around, but I think he's going to be somebody that's around for decades. Right. And he's going to have his influence is going to be the people that he inspires now, but the, and those are going to be like the teenagers and 20 year olds that are going to do stuff 20 years from now. Right. Where do you put Ron DeSantis between new and old? He's establishment. Uh, well, I, I, I don't like the word establishment. I like blob and anti blob. So sophisticated. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a little, it was just established because establishment Classic. is like, it's also associated with whether or not you hold power. Well, there's a whole group of people who hold power that aren't in this category. Thomas Massey is not part of the blob, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, you know, the Speaker of the House is maybe part of the blob. Um, the Senate Minority Leader is definitely part of the blob, right? Um, so I think the, 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 the difference is, I think culture might make sense. Like it's more, it's more sensible to think of it like a culture of, how do we think about the role of government and the role that DC should play in the average American life and around the globe? And there's a group of people who think that that should be a very expansive role. Uh, and there's a group of people who are generally saying that's not, shouldn't be the role. I mean, you could put, and the funny thing about that is that you could apply Tulsi Gabbard to that new aristocracy yeah. type as a figure, uh, while also putting Jordan Peterson in there when they're probably disagree on a lot, um, uh, or, you know, any other amount of conservative figures, the, the question is, is how do you see that role as the kind of pivoting factor? Because that's a lot where the money also wedges into that space with everything from the military industrial complex to uh, what we see with the Burisma scheme in Biden, where money flows through these patterns in these channels internationally. People take advantage of that, use it both on, you know, the, I forget what street is, Congressional Street and D.C. and on K Street, the lobby street. Uh, so the each each one of those are kind of like the synergistic you know market economy for political dollars uh, that creates these incentives to stir for a very interventionist foreign policy. Uh, also that that of course Trump, Trump disrupts or to um, basically use immigration as a political football forever, but never actually do anything. He tries to disrupt uh, things like that that um, really make him put him on the outsides of pariah. I don't think we have the evidence necessarily. I think people are understandably making the correlation between him being prosecuted and not the people within the blob being prosecuted has something to do with that dynamic. And I think that's a reasonable conclusion. We don't know that. Not like we know two plus two equals four, but I think we have a good sense of like you should, you can hold it with a bit more certainty than you can a lot of other things. Well, Uh, and there's certain things like uh, with everything that was going on in New York, like a month ago, remember the sexual assault charges or whatever was happening there. Yeah. Um, Well, that was campaign finance charges. What was the thing with the, uh, it was, it's hush money campaign finance. Yes. Yeah. Hush money for that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Because like the reason why that came forward was that woman really helped push for a law to get passed in New York so that these, uh, things that the statute of limitations wasn't going to be a thing for a year. So people could bring their charges forward mm. and, and, but then after a year, it's like, no, that's not happening anymore. Like, wasn't that the dynamic that was, that happened there? Oh, it was like some law that got pushed. But it's one of those things where you look at that and you're like, well, 
I, I think that this is clearly like there's there's something very political that's going on right. right here so that this lady can bring this thing forward so that we have headlines that come for Trump. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's stuff like that that happens, which should kind of be raising alarm bells to people. Additionally, and, the, and then there's the institutional factor, right? Trust in American institutions have been declining for a long time. There's a natural process that I think is, is you know, and I, I wonder what you think about this historically, Russ, like a natural process of faith in institutions as you're building them, as you're using them for your common defense, as there's like a clear purpose for them, and then like a decay of institutions where institutions, you know, start to be the self-licking ice cream cone that exist for their own existence, say they're no longer feasible, no longer, you know, they don't have a point anymore. Uh, yeah, for example, there's literally thousands of people who work at the Department of Agriculture, thousands and thousands. What are they doing? Writing checks. I don't know what they're doing. I don't have no idea. But, you know, institutions exist, start to decay, and then you have to revivify or, or end or fi- find new ways to build trust with the public by having institutions that solve problems. And so the, this is just like another, I mean, huge nail in the coffin of the institutions of the Department of Justice. Um, because if, if you don't apply the law equally, what is the law? Am I right about the institution thing? Yeah, I was. Uh, <clears throat> I was just trying to remember uh, for a while there. I couldn't remember, but uh, Warren J. Harding, uh, his administration. So this is uh, post World War One, uh, post Wilson. So Woodrow Wilson, then Warren J. Harding, and then he dies in office, and then you get Calvin Coolidge, uh, then the you know the whole twenties and all that. But uh, he ran on a campaign slogan, which I was trying to remember, and I was trying to will it to you to google <laughs> but you didn't get the, the i didn't get the telepathic communication the, here yeah. but uh it, the campaign slogan went something like just it was like back to america old america basically mm. right make, so, sounds like make america great yeah it's right? very close and um and his his uh um his administration was was racked with uh with scandals and Oh, the Teapot Dome, right? Teapot Dome. Sorry, yeah. I, I looked up Calvin Coolidge. Uh, oh, but, and that was keep cool with Coolidge. <laughs> but, but yeah, it was Warren yeah, G. Harding. Dude, if you your last name's Coolidge, you got to do that slogan. Yeah, yeah. Like, you got to. Cool buddy. Yeah, didn't even mean the same thing, though. What, is it, what did it mean? Did cool have the same meaning in that time period that it did now? To be... I thought that was slang that came in in like the 1960s. Oh, that's a good like, question. Cool. I, don't, I don't know that, actually. You know how I know that? Oh. Remember the Titans. <laughs> Uh, return to normalcy is what yeah, you're looking for. There yeah. we go. Return to normalcy. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was a lot of scandal, right? And he was a uh, he was a ladies' man. There's a there's a connection there. Uh, he had uh, affairs on his train. He had his own personal train. He was a relatively wealthy individual. Um, there's a lot of connections you can make to Trump. Actually, now that I'm well, sitting there thinking about and it. And also, I mean, JFK was also had a lot of like the ladies man yeah thing that was going and also on. And there a, was, a similar right. kind of uh reactionary movement on the opposite party obviously but in this case warren g herning was a republican so it's the same party but uh and i think uh to to the point of world war one 1917 espionage act and all of that like there was a a sense of have we gone too far uh we need an outsider warren g herning was that and to to change things up and to mix these things up when the faith in institutions had been deeply lost because uh you know there was nothing like world war one to break people's belief in the goodness of government Mm. um it wasn't as a big of an effect if i'm understanding it correctly as it was in like germany or like england or france 
but it still was. I mean, the massive slaughter of, you know, the Marne and things like that just completely woke people up that these people don't care about you. They will murder you and your kids to stay in power and to get what they want. And in the case of World War One, uh, in I think is 1932, there was a Democratic, no, a Republican senator from South Carolina, uh, South Dakota, that uh, started a commission to look into the origins of World War One. And so, I mean, this is decades later of what we're talking about, but I think this is kind of the same effect that people are looking into these elections and into these uh, what's going on with um, the intelligence agencies. And we're just going to continue to have these because the the faith in the institutions is degraded, like you're saying. And they're trying to either replace them or maintain them far beyond people's actual belief in them. Mm. And so you're just going to have continue to have these things. Um, that made me think of something. Mm. Um, so at the time, and I'm thinking the interwar period, was skepticism over the legitimacy of the sink and the Lusitania as a cause for World War One was that mainstream or was that very fringe? What, 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 what was that kind of ratio? Pretty mainstream, I would say. Skepticism because, was. Yes, yes. Ah. Uh, at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just flicked a pencil at Russ for some reason. That's, he didn't answer right. He was. <laughs> He's like, that's not the answer I was looking for. <laughs> it's, it's French. It's French. Um, it was pretty mainstream because, uh, like I said, um, in, in the 1920s and 30s, there was massive uh, anti-war reaction hmm. to what happened in the in, in World War One. I. I mean, and like think about this, right? It was so strong that during the twenties and the thirties, we have this massive pushback against the entire progressive era imperialism. We start to give back a lot more sovereignty to the Philippines. We start to give back a lot more sovereignty to Puerto Rico. We start to withdraw from China in a massive way. Now it doesn't mean we're all the way withdrawn. We're not. But we are withdrawing all the way through the 20s and the 30s. And guys, I mean, like, and think about, like, the steps that were taken in Europe in 1939, right? Those are pretty, I mean, the invasion of Poland, the invasion of France. And America is full on against, you know, FDR's will saying no. And we won't even let you lend stuff to the British, Right. The they the I think it's the Atlantic Compact. They're like, no, you cannot sell them things. You cannot do anything. And so then FDR's workaround is like, they'll pay us eventually. Maybe then I'm not mm. selling it mm. <laughs> <laughs> kind of deal. And uh, it's so I mean, the, the, the anti-war sentiment from World War One was so strong that I mean, there's they're staring down the barrel of Nazi Germany taking over Europe. And America's like sitting in its corner, sitting on its hands, being like, that's not our problem. Like, <laughs> and uh, it very much was. But, uh, you know, that, that's how strong the sentiment was. Mm. And the primary group blamed for it was the bankers. Mm. And so I think similarly in this situation, what you see is that there's a primary group that they're blaming for like this uh, devo- to like dissolving of trust in the federal government. And they blame, they constantly blame Trump for that. Mm. Right. And then the other side blames the other side for that. Um, and, uh, and the reality is just nobody has faith in it. Mm. Well, I think the reality is it's both sides fault. I mean, yeah. as we've talked about, for example, within the context of the debt ceiling, you know, it doesn't matter what party is in the white house, the national debt and the deficit just keep going up. Right. You know, and, and there are other problems that aren't addressed you know, decay of infrastructure, you know, military spending overseas. Like there are things that just no matter what even the president campaigns on, you know, during election season, 
you get into office and it just doesn't change. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it like this, like I, there's plenty of things that, you know, we can praise Trump for on policy and things like that, that we like when it comes to spending, he had four years and he was the biggest deficit spender in American history. And it'll happen with each president too. Like, yeah, it'll keep going up and up. And it up, has right? to, it yeah. literally has well, to. It's a, it's a decision. <laughs> like these are the decisions that, you know, but, 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 but there's, there's also, well, there's also mind, guys, an element We cut too. the budget under, under Clinton. Right. Sure. At least held budget spending relatively low compared to the growth of, of revenue. But for I think a long so. enough period of time to get a, get a budget surplus, it can happen. Sure. Hashtag I'm with him. We, de- <laughs> but, but, well, we well, deregulated yes. the airlines under Carter. There's all kinds of things that can happen outside of those lines. And, and, and that came with a, that was fairly bipartisan, right? Like Very, if, I, if I remember yeah. right, the Democrats were kind of mad at Clinton for Tip doing O'Neill. that. It was like a, it was like a Republican like it was the Republican deal and then, then Clinton signed on to it kind of. Well, they, they split like, the Democrat party to mm-hmm. make it happen. Yeah. The, but, but Republicans controlled Congress at the time, mm-hmm. right? So the 1994 revolution happened and, you know, there were some Democrats who were on board, but for the most part, it was a Republican run thing. But Clinton was always a centrist who needed to get job done in order to build his, the Clinton machine, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, he, he was- He, he made a bunch of compromises right, basically in order course. to build that. Right. And then, and then now Democrats take credit for the surplus that happened in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People always take credit for depending on the president that was in there. It's, not, <laughs> yeah. it's never like the, who was in Congress right. that were making- Never mind how it was happen, done. Right? It was done by cutting spending. Yeah. Not by, not, and, then, and then, you know, of course, you know, Trump not only got more revenue after Tax Cuts and Jobs Act than what they had beforehand. So Tax Cuts and Jobs Act happened. Revenue actually continues to increase, even though those are cutting rates. This happens because the economy grew, right? And that's what that's how it works. So it, whether or not it was a laugh or curve phenomenon, I'm open to. But it's still a question of even with the increased revenue, they increased spending so much more than that revenue that they went further in the debt. All they had to do was just hold debt or uh, spending consistent and they would have had a surplus. Well, Trump did go into personal bankruptcy at least a couple times, didn't he? So yeah, no one's here to say he's... <laughs> Very fiscally responsible, necessarily. <laughs> he ain't Ross Perot, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, the, the real estate game is just a gamble. He's just gambling throughout all of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, he got himself to the White House, so I guess that's uh, probably the most coveted piece of real estate in politics. Yeah. So, no, he said it was kind of a trashy house. If I, if I, if I remember <laughs> right. Of course, I remember yeah. when he came in, he's just like, no, my place is way better than this. <laughs> it's Trump Tower, folks. No Trump Tower. Oh, so I, the the Trump of like fifty years from now is going to be a crypto trader, right? They're going to be they're going to be like, yeah, made all my money on crypto, bet the bet the yeah. bus, bought the best coins. They're they're all yeah, they're all getting washed up onto the shores of San Juan lately. <laughs> all these people. <laughs> Do we want to go There's there? Some rabbit holes if you want to go to. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe in a future conspiracy episode. <laughs> yeah. Do the conspiracy. Do the- a lot of planes crashing lately. So um, on, on, on similar on other presidential candidates, Justin Amash had a really interesting substack uh, last week. Basically saying, uh, so uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, who was running for president now, uh, what's his campaign slogan? I'm not Trump. Forgettable. That's what it is. <laughs> Forgettable. No, it's, it's like the great American revival or something like that. <laughs> Um, so the, his, he, uh, Justin Amash served with him and Justin Amash was a Republican congressman who under the Trump investigation and other sorts of things left the Republican party. He was an LP, uh, libertarian party, uh, sitting congressman for like 18 months or something. And then, and then he didn't run for reelection out of Michigan. The highest office LP has ever held. Yeah. But the Justin Amash is, is legitimately a, a very, you know, sound philosophical person. Uh, when it comes to economy, civil liberties, foreign policy, things like that, um, he's not uh, he's not 
you know, Ron Paul, but he's still, he's quite excellent. And he's an excellent communicator and I really like him. So anyways, he, he wrote an article on a sub stack that he has now that you can get to uh, about his time serving with Ron DeSantis and his impressions of it. One of the things that happened, most of the actions of Congress happen behind the scenes. They don't happen in people's full, full view. So if you look at a scorecard, what you're seeing is a pre-negotiated, the scorecard's not negotiated, but the bill that comes up is pre-negotiated, right? We've covered this a lot when it comes to process on the podcast. A tremendous amount of the process determines what gets to the floor, not like open process like the Montana legislature or other state legislators where if something passes committee, it must go to the floor. So a tremendous amount of this is all pre-negotiated and therefore any score has already gone, any score or any kind of assessment by outside groups has already kind of gone through that lens. And it's very difficult to actually get a measurement just on their hard votes. So what he gave is a more qualitative assessment of Ron DeSantis. And uh, what was interesting about that is, and, and I quote, he was he was the most re, he was most reliable on basic economic matters like spending bills and least reliable on subjects like war, civil liberties, including surveillance and privacy. So I, I think that's interesting, especially as a lot of people on the right it look seriously at DeSantis and think, well, he did a good job as Florida governor, and kind of using that as a full marker of his total political philosophy. And I think that would be very unwise, uh, especially because presidency is not governor. Presidency's number one job is foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And if your foreign policy is bad, it, it, the, the rest of it follows from there. Um, you, 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 the most important issue right now in America is not even the debt limit, guys. It's the threat of nuclear war with Russia, the greatest stockpile of nukes on the planet. And that confrontation we have with them, potential confrontation, escalatory spiral we're currently in where Russia is writing articles this week about how the front, you know, a Moscow is now a frontline you know, city in this war because of drone attacks and attacks into the country from Ukraine. Although that says it's from Ukraine, while other sources are saying Ukraine denies that they're actually in control of it and it's all plausible deniability. So what do I mean by all that? Think carefully about who you're going to vote for for president, Republicans, <laughs> please, God, because uh, if this guy is, is a blob member, uh, that would be uh, very bad for the country. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unf*** the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. Well, I mean, his polling numbers look worse than they were when he announced, at least in relation to Trump. I didn't know that. It looks like Trump is, has increased his spread uh, in first place as likely nominee for the Republicans at this point, which obviously, as we've said before, this far out doesn't mean a lot, but hmm. it's not a trend in the right direction for Ron DeSantis' campaign, hmm. which frankly, I think is a good thing. I mean, he set a good example, is setting a good example as governor of Florida. He's I mean, through COVID, yeah, like you'd say he was pro-lockdown until he was anti-lockdown, but like they were at least leading the charge and responding to, you know, the the studies that showed that things were, you know, needed readdressing when it comes to our, our policy response to the pandemic. And I think he's been able to do good things there and, and create um, somewhat of like an archetype that other states can follow, right? That can look to and say, okay, at least I don't have to be leading the charge on this radical policy I, i've got florida to look to and it's working and 
you know, they're, they're a populist state. They're not an outlier kind of like Montana or whatever. Um, I think he's, he's got more positive impact to have there and, and probably much more downside risk to the country and, and probably to his own political career as president. That's just me personally. Yeah. Well, and a lot of the support, like when I just talked to like the average Republican voter in my own life, like say a year ago before DeSantis was ever announced he was running, but everybody was just kind of like, he's probably going to run kind of a thing. A lot of the sentiment generally was like, I, I voted for Trump. I liked Trump. I'm kind of over the moment and look at what happened in Florida. I, I kind of like that, right? Like that, that was always kind of the sentiment right now. But then now I think as time has gone on and people are seeing DeSantis a little bit more, they're looking at him and they're like, ah, he doesn't have the same energy of Trump. They, just, they still want that energy that Trump had, you know, and, and they're like, and then there's like a few things here or there, which is, I think some of the Ukraine stuff, he's been kind of wishy-washy on that. Some of the indictment stuff with Trump, DeSantis has been kind of wishy-washy on that stuff. And, and everybody that's kind of like, they're, they're like looking at him and they're like, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel it anymore. Like, like they had this vision of him and now that he's actually out there, they, they're not seeing that vision anymore. Mm. It's the same thing as like I said on the podcast is I actually think one of the, one of the biggest things that the average voter will look at on DeSantis is he's kind of like, he's kind of like nerdy. He's got this like nerd voice about him and he's just kind of like, mm. you know, he's got, he's kind of got like a weird, <laughs> he's kind of like he got mobster that in his from 1930s. Is that what he is? <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, like when he, when he talks, he sounds like that. And, yeah. and, and it's one of those things is like the gig at the end of the day is like this talking gig and he doesn't have the charisma of a Trump. Like Trump is just like throwing out one liners, calling people names, everybody that you hate. Right. Like, yeah. and, and I think the average voters like looking at that and they're like, I guess we'll throw it at Trump again. <laughs> you know, like they're kind of looking at it like that. Right. Um, I think the reality is, is that, uh, you know, the modern presidency is an, is, is a charisma game. It's an actor's job. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you can't, uh, fit that role perfectly and say just you know, at least the appropriately right thing for to to get your group to feel like they have the one up. You're in a you're in a tough position. And Trump understands show business, and that's what it oh, is, exactly. right? It's yeah. I, I think the reality is that since the 1940s, it's progressively became more and more of a showbiz uh, position. I mean, the uh, in every history book I've ever taught from, I've ever even looked at, actually. Um, one of the primary points about uh, television, uh, right? uh, is, is television. But the, one of the primary points about, uh, Reagan was the, was the, uh, the wit, the old Gipper wit, right? The and, great communicator. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> so I think it's, um, more than the actual, the actuality of it. It's our current understanding of that's what the job is. Hmm. You know, it's this person to say the right things at the right time to, say the right thing and then magically the stock market hockey sticks for reasons. Right. Totally. Well, I mean, it is sort of a PR role, like communicating what's going on in the government to the American people and to the rest of the world. You know, as we've talked about before, like the U S does lead the world and the world looks to the U S in so many ways, culturally, politically, otherwise it is kind of like that, but it raises an interesting hypothetical. And I want to pose this to you guys because it popped into my head and I, well, I'm just going to ask you, if you could pick one actor to be president, living or dead, I'll, I'll say living or dead, who would it be? Easy. Got it. Morgan Freeman. Tight. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's, that's a good choice. He's God. Oh, man, he <laughs> is. In my, classroom, in my classroom, I have two quotes. I have this pantheon of awesome that rings my room and my whiteboard. So you know how back in the day, you always had like presidents? 
right? Like in like their faces would ring that. So I made my own, but they're people that I like and people I find challenging, right? With really good quotes next to them. And I have Morgan Freeman. He has these two sick quotes about victimhood and, and about self-actualization. And then underneath it has just God. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just wrote God. It's like, <laughs> that is nice. Every once in a while, students like, who is that? I'm like, how dare you blaspheme? <laughs> is that Nelson Mandela? <laughs> He's also on the wall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, has a, he has an amazing quote about being a prisoner if everything is insane. Like uh, if, uh, if you make people illegal, we have a nation of prisoners. That's pretty good. Well, oh, I, yeah. Whoa. Yeah, you guys got to come in my classroom Sunday. Man. Yeah, sick. obviously. Field trip to Russell's class. <laughs> Let's do it. All right, actors, actors I, as president. I, I can't. I don't. I can't really think of an actor that I'd be like, yeah. But like, I think you are raising an interesting point. Of, I think as society is continuing to shift, just largely, I think a lot of them are just technological reasons. Um, that actor archetype is going to be more and more what we see as our future leaders, right? And you know, Trump is an example of this. Like, he's not an actor, but he's TV personality, he's an right? Actor. Um, but yeah, like he's he's a show business guy. Like, yeah, he's he's a, he plays a role, right, on TV, and he he played a role. Um, you know, it's the same thing. Like, look look in Ukraine. Zelensky was a TV comedian too, right? Like, we're seeing more and more of that type of stuff kind of come up, and we we start to see more people floating ideas of celebrities. Like, it's like oh, The Rock or Oprah or what whatever, you know, like. So I, I think I think that we are going to see that trend more and more just because we live in this attention economy and everybody's focused on, you know, who has the biggest influence on Twitter or Instagram or something like that. You know who'd be great? Not an actor, but definitely is in show business. Excellent communicator and super badass. Dana White, president of the UFC. Would make it a great. Oh my god, candidate. he would slay. Leave it to a bald guy <laughs> to suggest Dana White uh, as president. I gotta well, support my fellow balls, well, well, man. And, and, and uh, Dana White is kind of he is very much like politically speaking a very yeah. anti-establishment figure who yeah. has also had his fair share of allegations thrown his oh, way too. Dude, right? that's, yeah, like, that's and th- that is because he is <laughs> a cultural, a re- culturally relevant person. Well, right? th- and additionally, to that like the amount of people like. The, specifically the voters that the Republicans need that are in the demographic of the UFC is pretty substantial. I mean, lower middle income, white dudes, you know. Joe Rogan running mate, perhaps? Yeah, Joe Rogan would be Well, great. no, he would just be like, he's just, he becomes state media. <laughs> <laughs> Under Dana White, right? <laughs> just NPR just becomes the Joe Rogan yeah, podcast. Just, yeah. just, just starts funding the podcast. <laughs> just degenerate comedians coming on on state media. I love it's it. Like, well, I mean, that's, I, I don't know if this is even going to happen, but I mean, speaking of comedians, like the LP is seems to be flirting with the idea of running Dave Smith or he seems to be flirting with that or he has been for a year. I don't know who's actually like substantiating that because obviously I guess like any good pre-announced candidate, he's been avoiding the question altogether. doesn't seem to me like he's terribly enthusiastic about the idea. Like he might do it just to bring some notoriety to the party. But I mean, what, what do you think about a Dave Smith candidacy? Do you think that would have any impact? One thing to note that you literally can't, announce until you're fiscally available to oh wow! because then your time changes and the filing changes and all like there's like tremendous amounts it also changes his podcast stuff like uh, he's he's made jokes about this on his podcast talking about like you know (laughs) it's like i can't talk about this because of he makes it humorous but because government regulations about things the fec is tremendously like consequential when it comes to speech in that in that area because the minute that you are an announced candidate 
It has implications on all your finances, and they will go after you. They're they're very prosecutorial. Interesting. So yeah, yeah. So I, I'm saying that to my boy Dave is uh, is obviously being very smart by not doing that. And it's not just you can't you have to do it with a wink and a nod. That's just the nature of it um, because of the way the government works. How would how would he do? Yeah, I will. I mean, look, I'm in the situation where I I like anytime someone can get on and articulate sound money and free market and anti-war anti-war positions like that that I'm, I'm for it whatever stage we can get on to do that because that will save the country right that's what that's that's at least what will save the country it, it would be minimum it would be wild to see him on a debate stage with presidential candidates yeah like yeah, not gonna happen but, yeah, he's just he's you know like he it was wouldn't happen to, but it would actually wild. take off the gloves i i would that would be delicious. I would buy all the yard signs. It, it, it would be wild to watch. <laughs> like My neighborhood in, would be very mad at me, but it would just be yard signs. No, they wouldn't. They'd be like, oh, there goes Russ. He's crazy. Well, I, I think his mental model is correct about a running as a, <laughs> <laughs> I think his mental model is correct about running as a third party of like going in with the complete expectation that obviously you're not going to win, but you're just like spreading a message and you can kind of use it as a way of bullying the other parties into certain positions and stuff. Right. Like, I think that is the correct approach and he is, he's right about that. When it's actually proving to be correct uh libertarian party of i can't remember where i think i sent it to you joe yeah colorado libertarian party has uh released uh, sorry gop has released an announcement saying that they will stay that is that the that they've made an agreement with the libertarian party that if they run free market limited government pro-peace candidates that they libertarian party will not run against them wow Right, and this is exactly what we saw. Montana Republican or Libertarian Party did something similar, not with an agreement, but they very specifically said, "We are not endorsing the candidate running against Matt Rosendale because he's doing great on sound money and uh, and sound foreign policy, and you know it sets up an incentive structure for your third party to actually matter when it comes to where they run, how they run, all that kind of stuff." So there's two parts of that. One, if you have you get the messaging platform. Two, you can use that messaging platform to pressure the close the party closest to you into adopting your positions that was always the purpose of libertarian party you can look at murray rothbard talking about the launch of the party in the 1960s at a, at a in there's the you can find it on 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 youtube and he's very specific he says the purpose of this is to be the far right anchor i don't remember he's right right but a uh, like a wing party anchor to draw other parties towards us because otherwise they lose electoral viability that's so the, the counterbalance to communist or some other sort of very authoritarian and to hold them accountable. Cause if you don't hold true to your values, then people leave and they go to a, to a competitive party according to those principles and values. Yeah. And I see the GOP can become sensitive to that and obviously is becoming more sensitive to that uh, because of the role that Gary Johnson played and other played that. And then uh, on the Senate level played in the Herschel Walker race and other races around the country where the libertarian was above the margin. So well, it, also think about Dave Smith running right now is like, think about the media apparatus that would come around him, like all the independent media. like he's going to he'll be on Joe Rogan once a month, like, you know, throughout a campaign. Right. Mm. And, you know, that's gigantic audience. Um, like it's a good avenue of like actually spreading the general message about what the problems are right now. Um, I, like if the LP was going to run anybody, in my opinion, it should be Dave Smith. Um It'll get a lot of flack from certain libertarian wings of the party and everything like that. I don't really care about your party, but yeah, <laughs> it's right. like, yeah, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a libertarian party partisan, mm-hmm. you know, but, but, and, and I actually disagree with Dave Smith on some issues. Like I think pretty strongly, I mean, the more he comes out with his immigration point of view, the more I'm like, eh. 
what what have you heard that you disagree with? He had an entire episode uh, on on kind of unpacking his points of view on immigration, and I uh, find it to be ill defined and not really well thought through, in my opinion. I, I'm not. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I, I find I'm sure he's thought yeah. through it, but I think he's he's coming to a conclusion that's contradictory to his principles. How so? I D- can you can disagree you give... with that. Actually, okay. um, I I th- see. I find pretty much all sides of the immigration debate to be kind of ill-defined. <laughs> like, sure, like, like, I, like I, I never know what people are talking about when they're like closed borders, open borders, all these things. Right. Yep. And my, what my understanding of Dave Smith's argument is just that, uh, that the people that like the, the, the big problem that he is seeing is just like, there's public property. Like that, that's the big problem here that exists. And if everything was in like the perfect libertarian society where everything was like privately owned and blah, 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 all this stuff. Right. Then the, it would be very clearly it's just like everybody would be able to define their own borders. But the problem right now is because there's all this public property that we have this weird, like tragedy of the commons. We don't really, we don't have clear definitions of things right now. So like in that way, people of a nation should be able to kind of close off their immigration if they want to and or or not right like there should be like an option there but like he's saying that we live in an imperfect society right now so it's a very muddy complicated issue yeah so like if if you're going to go muddy complicated issue and assume the state first then your best policy for driving in the direction of greater human prosperity is is a liberalized immigration system now you use open border or closed border what i mean by liberalized is if you can move to a place, and I'm talking about the old liberal system, the system that we had for over 100 years in this country. If you move to a place and you have, if you don't have a disease, you have a job or a job prospect or tradable skills, and you're not a criminal, welcome aboard. See, I don't, I don't think Dave Smith would disagree with Absolutely, that. he disagrees with that. I know. <laughs> because the guy he's debating on this, Alex Norris, that's his position, right? So like Alex Norris, Alex from Cato Institute is not some guy who's saying, you know what's great? Illegal immigration. We need more of it. He's he's literally poking at a at a See, uh, he's, he's 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 tilting at a windmill on that. See, the, the, the thing that frustrates me with the immigration argument, especially like the interlibertarian immigration argument, which is like whatever, sure. is like I think it often comes down to misunderstood definitions and people just like throwing words around that are kind of meaningless. Like yeah. it is like these words like open borders and things like, cause like that's how the debate comes is like, are you closed border? Or are you open border? Yeah, and it's like, totally it's, it's so much more nuanced than that. Yeah, and yeah. so it ends up being this weird narrative. So almost no. It, okay. So the best thing make, you can do, anything. what ticks me off about it is if you're closed border, the best thing you could do is liberalize the immigration system. To make the, it easier to come yes, into the country if, legally. Okay. Which I, uh, Russ, I think what Dave happens when you ban guns? <laughs> Do they just disappear? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they just dematerialize like Thanos, you know, just, yep. yeah, you snap it and all the guns That's disappear. ATF does. Right. So when That's you, they did all those people in Ruby, <laughs> when you set immigration caps, too dark, when you say, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, yes, but I like it. <laughs> oh, you got to go there. Uh, so when you set Rub immigration caps, like when you say this amount of people from this industry can come in and everything above that is now illegal. And there's a market demand for everything above that. You've created an incentive for illegal immigration. The real cause, the biggest cause of illegal immigration is jobs that have a comparative advantage that immigrants could fulfill that they otherwise can't. The other one is the drug war, right? So drug war, labor caps. Way down the list is like border enforcement. Uh, and border enforcement is important. It could be, it happened to like a good example in the 1970s, we had a program called the Becerra program. The Becerra program increased border enforcement while it liberalized the labor markets. That's open borders. 
right? What it says is like, it's open to come here. Now, it doesn't mean maximizing illegal immigration is what people seem to think that's what open borders means. Now, I don't have to use that word. I don't care. I'm not an open borders guy. Fine. I'm going to liberalize the labor markets and actually well, solve the problem. Like, I, I actually, I, like, I think and this is where the, that's I think this is where the arguments stem from. But though, that's where that, Cato's at. Cato, that's, I'm, I'm articulating Cato's position. No, but like what and I'm saying they, is I don't Dave think Smith, Cato's articulating their position well, because well, that's not what I get as a libertarian. <laughs> well, listening to I don't know about that. Like, I, <laughs> I don't, right. I don't, I, Cato, I mean, Dave Smith is challenging that guy to a debate because they disagree. So what do mm-hmm. they disagree about? <laughs> <laughs> and, and like, I think Dave might be also falling into this trap because like he, he's getting bombarded with Internet people, right? Sure. Like saying things and people are using terms like open borders, whatever that means. Like, right. but it, it's 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 the same thing as like people just calling every like you always say, I'm going to use the F word fascism. Like it's the <laughs> yeah. same thing where it's like right. closed borders and open borders becomes this terminology where it's like this weird concept in the sky and everybody's just pulling from it what they want to pull from it, whether good or bad. And they, these words don't actually mean anything anymore. And sure. until you actually get into the nuts and bolts and things. So what you end up getting is whenever these debates happen between these people is everybody's talking past each other because nobody's using the same definitions anyways, yep. Yep. which is how politics always works, right? right like right. this is Republican Democrat too, right? Like it's the same thing. I totally agree. I, I, I actually agree with all those points about how muddy the waters are and all that kind of stuff. What ticks me off about the issue is that all of a sudden it's become that the libertarian position is unclear. And I think it's absolutely clear. I don't see I, how you can have a vision for a private. It's clear. <laughs> well, I mean, in the sense of from the philosophy. I mean, like if you have a private property, if you if borders are imaginary, if 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 what matters is individuals and free association and people's ability to say, hey, I wouldn't mind housing you. You're happy. You know, you're welcome to move here. Hey, I wouldn't mind employing you. You're happy to move here. And then saying, but because there's a commons and because there's third party effects, we shouldn't have immigration. To me, is silly, right? It's like saying. Because, it, but like, but that's the thing is like I don't think Dave Smith is saying we shouldn't have immigration. Well, no, <laughs> right? I, like, I, I, that's what closed borders means. At least, at least that's be, that because is the these words are articulated on right? his podcast when he was saying this. Like, I think people are just having they're having associations with words that he and was they're pulling open from what to they reducing want to have. legal immigration. Sure, right, and which is which is I think completely antithetical to the values of a free and open society. I think we probably need to have Dave Smith on the podcast. Yeah, too. yeah. I'm sure he will. At least, if I understand correctly, I mean, I actually, I really like the guy. I'm not, I'm not trying to dog him. I'm just saying that there are some things I disagree with him on, and even then, I would still like him to be the messenger in the sense of um, someone up there to articulate the things he's great about. Russ, I'm curious to hear from you on this. Is there any sort of historical context to inform or apply to this question of is there has there ever been a more optimal immigration? policy in the United States or anywhere really for that matter, but specifically since U.S. history is your forte. Mm-hmm. What's that? Yeah, I like? mean, uh, the history of uh, uh, immigration restriction in this country really goes uh, to the populist and progressive era, just like most governmental <laughs> things. I feel like it's just a broken record. And uh, the reality is, is that the first, the first group of people that were uh, heavily restricted formally from coming were Chinese people. Uh, and it was to reduce uh, the labor competition coming in from California, you know, the Pacific Coast inward. And um, there's a bunch of uh, historical, uh, you know, uh, racism that's that's built into that. I mean, China had uh, had laws where China uh, Chinamen, right, uh, in the parlance of the time, at the time couldn't buy land, uh, so they couldn't get. Uh, mining uh, mining claims so they started laundries they started 
um, you know, other, other industries there and did quite well, but uh, didn't stem the flow, right? And uh, that even affected Montana. The second largest uh, Chinese population in the Western United States was in Butte. Um, and uh, there's a really great book on it, and I just spaced it. Um, oh, shoot. Something under the big sky. <laughs> a kind of stereotypical Montana title. But um, the um, the that's where it really stems. That's where it really starts. I, I want to say that's 1896-ish, right? Um, Chinese Immigration Act, if somebody wants to look it up, but uh, no big deal if you don't. Um, and then we start to get the, the Immigration Quota Act in 1921, I believe. Um, and that's when we get our modern immigration state, where we're going to uh, pick and choose based upon, uh, was it? Oh, is that I'm, I'm seeing, well, 1923 is Chinese Immigration Act and then Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. Oh, that's why I'm at 1882. I was off. Sorry about that. Um, but, uh, anyway, then in the 1920s, you start to get uh, picking and choosing of different, uh, ethnicities and who should be allowed in and not. It's a hundred percent based on, um, a eugenics paradigm that was intertwined in all of the, um, the progressive era. There's not a single policy within the progressive era that was not based on a sense of scientific racism, Right. And uh, all everything from the progressive income tax to uh, the direct election of senators. The reason why they wanted all of those things is because they thought that there was classes of society that would be better off to make those decisions and classes of society that shouldn't. And people we want in the society to make it a more pure society. The idea of, um, um, what is it, uh, social uh, hygiene and that you have a health of the body politic and all of that um that's all from that era and that's a hundred percent where immigration is from um there were immigrant uh immigration standards before that but all of them were basically what dave had just mentioned um you know you would have to profess that you're not a criminal you'd have to show up and uh, go through a health test you'd have to go up and, and show uh that you're capable of having a job and then if you had um, like a letter of employment, you had a better chance of getting in. People were rejected um, in massive numbers and they were sent back at the cost of the shipper, of the person transporting them. And so most of that got done overseas where they would pick them up. And um, uh, so it's kind of, you know, the federal government didn't have to run all of that. They ran some of it. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, and across the world, uh, the, the cornerstone of all immigration par- policies that I could point out is a limiting, it's protectionism. It's a limiting of local manufacturing and local jobs. And uh, ever since the uh, Great Depression, there has been a deep need and addiction to illegal labor in the United States that stems from the progressive era and the creation of labor restrictions for the poorest Americans that they cannot take jobs. They cannot lower their income low enough to compete with illegal labor. So business and even the American public are desperately addicted to it because how much do you want to pay for an avocado? That's a really interesting point that I, I had never put together until you just mentioned it. So like the minimum wage in the United States for a legal laborer, someone who is either here legally from another country or a citizen, prevents them from competing with an illegal immigrant mm-hmm. because that illegal immigrant is off the books the employer is going to be higher than hiring them under the table at a rate lower than the legal minimum wage in the country which puts the citizen at a disadvantage 
And even if the wage is actually higher because you don't have to pay unemployment insurance, you don't have to pay um, health insurance, you don't have to pay anything else except for that wage. So often, actually, what the studies that I've seen and articles I've seen is that the wage for that, un- for that illegal immigrant could actually be higher than what an employee might make that's starting off at minimum wage for that job because there's no other costs in order to draw you know, uh, people that you want. So that's disadvantaging a citizen while meanwhile creating a vacuum for labor illegally across the border or from other countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and so it's, we... It's primarily not Mexico, right? The average illegal is not from Mexico. They're from Nicaragua, Honduras, places like that that travel through Mexico mainly. It's not, not to mean that there aren't Mexican illegal laborers. I mean, there's Nigerian illegal laborers. People just like awkwardly leave that stuff out. It's not like you just got to cross a border. You just got to get here somehow. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so well, there's RFK also, just visited the border and oh, shot that I, video. I, I actually and, just pulled up that video. Um, I mean, he was talking about how there's like people represented from, I don't know, like, what did he say? Some high number of countries crossing the border in the last month. Um, I, I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We can play it here. Yeah, let's um, do it. Yeah. Hey, everybody. I'm at the border wall at- around Yuma, Arizona. It's about two o'clock in the morning. Um, We've watched about 150 people come across. You can see the end of the wall down there. And we've watched about 150 people come across in the last hour. The first group were about uh, 50 or 60 people from Africa, from West Africa. This group that is filing behind me right now, we interviewed many of them. Uh, they're from Peru, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, India, China, Tibet, Nepal, and all together, uh, people have come across right here from 117 nations in the last couple of years. In three years, in total, seven million people have come across the border illegally into our country. And from here, they're put on these buses and they're brought to the border patrol station where they're processed. After four or five days, they're released on their own reconnaissance into our country and most of them are never seen or heard from again. And the stories that we heard from these people are absolutely heartbreaking. This is a humanitarian crisis because of the understanding across the globe that we now have an open border here. There are people being drawn here. Uh, They're being abused. Uh, There is all kinds of just horrific, uh, terrible, terrible stories. And this is not a good thing for our country it's not a good thing for these people and it is unsustainable yeah the number one question i had before he alluded to it there was how are they getting here right i mean you you, you mentioned the, the the shippers you know talking about historical immigration like who's bringing the people here from bangladesh and india and africa and catch an airplane man yeah, all you got to do is have a yeah. travel visa uh to go somewhere else and then go somewhere else from that somewhere else and then because yeah. that, so, that right there is basically the edge of the wall. Like the wall is not completed, right where right? I, and they're just walking around that edge and then coming in, right? I've spent a decent time in Mexico, um, and that's actually right where we crossed was Yuma, actually. So that's kind of cool, but uh, there was no wall then. 
It was during the Obama years. It's the Great Trump Wall right there. So you think, I mean, are, are most of these people <laughs> well-resourced enough to afford an international plane ticket? Oh, yeah. Like, that's, that's, that's how they're getting here? Just flying to Mexico and walking across? I mean, aren't there like convoys of buses driving north from There, there are convoys coming from Central America you, that are coming up. Yeah, and you got to, you know, I mean, the investment, all they have to do is get to the border, right? So, I mean, and that's could be greatly costly. But, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I mean, $2,200 probably if you really, really went cheap, right? I mean, and we're talking about, you know, we're not talking about really f- nice flights. We're talking about pretty, you know, kind of sketchy flights. You're talking about a lot of, a lot of walking. <laughs> right and twenty two hundred dollars, you could probably get across the world. Right, all the thing that's really holding them up often, from my understanding, is exit visas to get out, and then entry visas to get in places, and that's really what's holding it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, the the situation to me is uh, seems really really clear, and the fact that what the issue is that you just need to you need to know where these people are coming from, where they're going, who they are. Um, the reality is is the largest the largest growth in the American economy also coincided just so happenstance with the largest growth of immigration in all of human history that's been recorded. That's not a coincidence. It's, it's competition and labor markets that drives up quality and drives, uh, drives down prices. And this is the fundamental thing that Marx does not understand. And to me, it's the fundamental problem with all types of protectionism. And that protectionism has, you know, the lack of protectionism, it does have costs. Free markets hurt. But the reality is, is if you are not advancing past the rate of inflation with the quality of those goods and those prices of those goods, everyone loses. And the current status quo of having an illegal addiction, or sorry, addiction to illegal labor and an addiction to these cheap goods that are artificial, that's really bad because then if somebody does step in and quote fixes it that's gonna hurt bad because imagine the industries that would be affected well the fix would have to include getting rid of the minimum wage right so that legal labor residents citizens could could work but also then you're faced the question of well is that going to be a livable wage for that person with prices where they are well that, that 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 undervalues the consumer bid right so market clearing processes where consumers bid to so if you have somebody who's bidding lower because they make less money, that actually drives down prices. Sure. So, so that, say McDonald's can hire someone for five bucks an hour versus 15, they can charge less for the burger because they're, they're paying less for the labor. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Additionally, that the, the process of deflation happen, is, is good for consumers, right? And it's typically because of the sticky wage phenomena, good for employers, or I mean, good for employees. So the, the long term, if you look at the short term in an individual story, it's a little more difficult story to tell that's compelling to people. But in the long term, if you look at labor markets, what tends to happen, in, especially when you know I'm not fighting inflation because of inflationary monetary policy and the Fed and all that kind of stuff. If you have a stable currency, what you tend to see is an increase in the labor market, increases productivity, increases total amount of goods, driving down prices. So greater supply greater and innovation. Budget. I just, I'm just going to additionally innovation, yeah. innovation because the, the number of world changing, uh, inventions that are created from 1880 to 1910 is this huge number, right? And the number that came to America with a basis of an idea or the roots of the idea then came here and it was able to let it flourish is this huge number of them. It's insane. 
and uh, you know in this in this studio there's there's hundreds of devices and objects that are amongst those and uh, things that we never think of uh, a really good example is the there's a jewish guy from poland who invented the baseball card and it was this great idea of selling the likeness and the stats and this identity of this person you wanted to be like and it was this poor polish jewish immigrant that's like ooh, we should pr- print these and hmm. that made a huge amount of money and so i mean there's more complex things i mean there's things people like tesla but um but the, the reality to me of the situation is that it's, it's a perfect example in teaching. It's, it's why we make too much now because the system just costs so much. There's so many hidden costs, the things that you don't think about. How much does the administrator cost? How much does the uh, upkeep of, uh, so we have continuing education credits we have to do. How much does that cost the, the taxpayers? I have no idea, but it's a lot because <laughs> there's a lot of teachers, right? So it's not just the wage. So it's like the wage. We don't get paid enough. A dude out there picking avocados, I guarantee you that bro doesn't make enough. I don't know what that would do. I have worked with migrant, uh, uh, migrant students uh, in Flathead teaching the math, actually, in the, in the orchards, and they don't make enough. That sucks because if those things burst, they make zero money. And that's just if the if it's hot and it rains and mm. the cold water causes the cherries to burst. And now they're out all of their bonus money for the year. There's no way you make enough for what that is. But that's just reality. That's that that's a reality that we can do nothing about. And what it does, if we don't have competition, you'll have continually hidden costs. And those hidden costs grow. So now what are the hidden costs? We have no clue what industries would be just crumbled if we cut illegal immigration today. It would just crumble our economy. In the same way, I mean, probably agriculture. You think oh, agriculture house, at least. You think yeah. housing is expensive now? Construction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you like it? <laughs> the answer is yes. Probably affected. And so to me, it's the same thing in education, right? Uh, it's not a competitive market being a teacher. There's tenureship. There's all of that, which is uh, creates a non- competitive market and so there's all of these hidden costs the foremost people point out they love to point out like old teachers that are billion years old and they're you know on their 40th year of teaching they don't do anything it's just search of words and things like that right that's the upfront cost everyone can see those right the fact that you know you can be a teacher in in some districts and the tenureship is so strong that you basically can't be fired unless you're smacking kids around or something and uh those those are costs, right? But to me, it's all of the additional costs that that come down that road that you have no control over, especially things, the really small things like the quality of teaching that you could never prove, right? Those are going to be those huge costs. You don't believe in institutions? Well, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't either if I wasn't actually involved in creating those institutions. If I was an illegal immigrant or just an immigrant that couldn't become a part of the system, why would I teach my kids to be a part of the system? Why would I do that? Why would I value that system? Mm. And uh, if you give them skin in the game, maybe they would. Mm. At least that's what all of our ancestors did. Yeah. And they were hated. I see you got red hair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no Irish need apply. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Hatred. Germans, hatred. Italians, hatred. Jews, hatred. Eastern Europeans, hatred. And it was passionate and when they were here illegal and a bunch of them were, especially all them patties, a lot of those dudes were illegal, right? 
And they would just pop on in and people hated it because what did they do? They drove down prices in competition of labor. So shove them into the Union Army and hopefully a bunch of them die in the war. But Russ, they'll change our culture. Yeah, they did. They made America. We have a different culture. We invented cussing. We invented uh, St. Paddy's Day. Yeah, taking that back, Ireland. Ours is actually sick. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they don't even have corned beef. This, this, you this, ever have corned beef? <laughs> I was in Ireland less than a month ago. They don't and, have corned uh, beef. I didn't. Corn beef is corn the product. Beef. I'm trying to remember. Corn I'm beef sure is it was the on product. a menu somewhere. Do you know the story of corned beef? No. It's the most American story ever. Let's right? hear it. No, hit it. Oh, okay. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I will. So uh, once again, you have to read. Renegade's History in the United States by Thaddeus Russell. It incorporates a lot of these stories and talks a lot about this, but corned beef is a part of a Jewish cooking process with a cut of beef that Irishmen use. Yeah, it's the cheapest cut of beef. Yeah, the cheapest cut of beef, right? So it's associated with Ireland. They would use that because they're lower income. So what happened is you have these ghettos in the East Coast that were full of- New York City. What's that? New York City. New York City specifically. That would- fill up with immigrants, Jews and certain Irishmen. ethnicities created certain neighborhoods. Yeah. And they would intermingle. And there was more than that that I think we anticipate for a lot of the way we think about those eras. And uh, one of the innovations out of that was corned beef, which became a staple of Irish food only in America. Uh, and it might've cross pollinated back to Ireland. Possibly. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't see it when I was in Scotland at all, uh, but I don't think I did. Yeah. Uh, but the, um, it's it's a uniquely American thing, along with a ton of our our the way our language is different than England, is because of the Irish, who came over and um, invented almost all of our cuss words and and fun words that we use, all the good ones. Thank you, Irish immigrants. And <laughs> <laughs> Joe's like, that's my people. We're innovators. <laughs> uh, Tate was trending on Twitter. I want to know what that's about. Andrew, I, Andrew I, I think he had to, well, he just had that big interview with PBD, oh, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he was on with, yeah, Patrick Bet David, Valuetainment. I, I, I think he got pulled that into, I think he got uh, pulled into court again today or something. Too. Oh, right. So I think it had to do something with that. Oh, who cares about that? All right. So the New York Times has a new story out. Get this. They read a story that anyone who's known anything about Ukraine for any amount of time <laughs> already knows. Its national government is leveraging some of the worst aspects of its own racist history to prosecute this war quote nazi symbols on ukraine's front lines highlight thorny issues of history troops use patches bearing nazi emblems risks fueling russian propaganda and spreading imagery that the west has spent half a century trying to eliminate end quote it's the new york times and it was like i might have been two weeks ago but it was such a huge thing because it's like the first thing i knew about ukraine when before this whole thing started i was like wait a minute wasn't one of those, what are the, wasn't the government like just elected a Nazi just like two minutes ago? Was everyone freaking out about that? Like just a little bit ago, the same year in like 2016. And because, uh, <laughs> and I was a little bit off. It was actually like 2014, 2015. When 2013, this I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where where they elected this cat who was, you know, had the, the whole arm in the air thing. I'm not going to do it. Uh, and uh, don't do it. Definitely. Is in association <laughs> with some very, yeah. Oh, no, I'm sorry. 2013 was the that was the Euro maiden revolution. I'm sorry. Yeah, but it, it was, was after, after that. that. It yeah, was the bad. government elected after. I that. think you're right. I think it was like 2017. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. So and, and it wasn't like the main guy, but it was guys within the cabinet and major guys around it. And it was like there was articles written at the time about how 
controversial this 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 could potentially be. Uh, meanwhile, we had the whole um, I forget her name the um, release call where she says "f Europe." What's her name? She's popular in the State Department. She's been around forever. Oh, oh God. it's like right on the tip of my tongue. Old Anyways, woman in politics. <laughs> she's not that old. She was really relatively young at this this point. Um, Nancy Pelosi. I think she's my age actually. You know, think about it. Diane Feinstein. No, no, no. This is was a Victorian new one. Mick Victorian new. She's one, yes. way older than you, man. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, born in 1961. Oh god, <laughs> I think that she's uh, been around forever. She's yeah. been like big neocon for like yes. when you were in high school. She was yes. a big neocon. Yes. Right? Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I was thinking something. So, anyways, as far as that, she she got recorded on this after the after the revolution that they claim was completely organic, but we definitely know that the NGOs and other organizations were and associated Nazis. with. And literal Nazis. The Euromaiden is a nationalist movement. Nobody in Europe is like confused on who they are. But nationalism's bad because Trump. Na- nationalism is bad. <laughs> <laughs> is it also bad in Ukraine? Yeah, it's bad everywhere. Why would it be bad in Ukraine? Dead, They're the good guys. Dead people. <laughs> Lots of dead people. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's the that's the crazy thing is like the people in the United States are still seeing this. Unfortunately, they need to listen to the podcast. They're still seeing this as good guy Ukraine, bad guy Russia, and for good reason, right? Russia invaded Ukraine. That's bad. But what they're not seeing is what they're not, not seeing. seeing. Oh my god! Oh, oh, oh <laughs> come on! What they're not what? seeing. He walked right into that. Ouch! <laughs> so we can't drink Evan, the podcast. Evan, Evan is sad. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, he's happy. Yeah. Sorry, he Evan's giving the, the thumbs jokes. up. It's good. It's good. Oh, the joke <laughs> meets with approval from Evan in the back. What they're not seeing. <laughs> what they're not seeing is that this is a much longer, detailed story that has to do with the United States and Russian relations. Obviously, we don't want to go on the whole thing, but at least a component of this is for some time. Both the prosecution of the war on the Donbass was done by literal fascists, like people who believe in national socialism, people who claim credit from their um, grandfather's actually, participation I, no, in World War II. In? Yeah. Actually, Islamo-fascists in the case of Georgia, mm. right? The vast majority, there's two parts to that war. There is the part that is uh, more, uh, you know, uh, uh, well, I mean, they're just not... Muslims, right? Mm. And then they're, they're, I think they're Orthodox, but I'm not 100% sure on that because I, I know that has deep ties to the, to, to Russia. But uh, there's the Christian side, which are, they're fascists. They want a Georgia and they've wanted a Georgia for a very long time. And uh, because there's purges in Georgia during the Soviet Union as well, uh, you know, or during uh, Stalin's reign, that was, uh, you know, not as numeral, as numerous as, uh, as uh, Ukraine. But then there's the other side, which is uh, Islamo-fascists, and they want a separate state from the other Georgian state. And that was one of the key parts to Russia actually winning that war, is that there was at times factions that would divide and not work well together, Mm. and then also apparently fight each other. But I'm not sure if that's 100% true. Mm. But that's one of the things that I've read, is that they were a very ununited front, and they thought the same thing was going to apparently this is a conjecture of a historian. Mm. Uh, he seems to think that they that the Russians thought the same thing in the Ukraine because there's some deep ethnic divides east and west, mm-hmm. and that that so many of those ethnic Russians should have switched sides, but they didn't apparently. Mm. So interesting. So there's the the factor of these guys who since from um, the Minsk Accords one to two 
to the present day have been prosecuting a you know civil like war it's hard to know how to describe it I mean, what do you also call having a civilian population where everyone just kind of gathers up and like shells them from a distance civil war is that fair but there's not really an army on the other side other than that made up of a few people from that area militias and potentially russian troops uh, also being injected into that are you familiar with this i'm confused on what you're talking about uh, in ukraine in ukraine in ukraine there's the donbass region yes yes donbass oh, region is oh, uh, ethnically uh, russian uh what is that in a breakaway um uh, breakaway state there's a term for that yeah yeah right that, um, you're on board yeah that's right so they yeah. they actually voted to leave to go to russia all that kind yep. of stuff so but russia rejected them yeah right mm-hmm. which is interesting uh it just shows you that you know they they want something that they're not getting right so the Donbass region yeah, voted so, to break away from Ukraine and join Russia, yeah, but mm-hmm. Russia said no. Yeah, mm-hmm. said and now no Russia unequivocally no. is invading to supposedly to claim it. No, but See, that's that that's, makes no well, sense. That's the narrative. Well, yeah, that's the if, narrative. But if what you just said is true, read a history book. Then that doesn't make any <laughs> sense at all. Well, well, there, wait, wait, wait. So also keep in mind a lot of time went between these two <laughs> things too including a lot of people died from the shellings by literal Nazis in Ukraine. Like these kind of private militia might be the best word, but effectively it's like a group of guys who who are believe in a ethnic Ukrainian state who don't like them because they're Russian and speak Russian and are ethnically Russian. Additionally to that, they, they have this history with their grandfathers in World War II and all that kind of stuff. And additionally to that, there might have been, and there's definitely pictures of Lindsey Graham and other senators talking to these guys, encouraging them in what they're doing prior to the Russian Russian invasion because the forces in Donbass were connected to the Russians. So it was like a proxy war of sorts where the U.S. was backing these Nazis to shell this group of ethnic Russians while they were being, you know, marshaled and potentially by proxy groups that are probably from Russia. Although I've never seen like hard evidence of that. It's been claimed pretty universally, so I'm, I'm, well, I think it's there's there's a pretty evidence. there's a pretty easy piece of evidence is is weaponry. Yeah. So you got to remember, like in wars in like Syria, wars in like um, Lebanon, right? Wars in Iran, right? Um, wars in uh, uh, Iraq. You you have these wars where you have nation state actors, and then you have subsidiary groups that are not under the nation state on how we think of it. Mm-hmm. You have to remember and. All listeners should read this book. I just got so many books. I'm sorry. It's called Weird. It's um, it's a, a book of psyche, psychology, sociology. It's amazing. But it explains how strange the Western worldview is and how it's a product of a long, complicated history. But one of the things we think of states is these super monolithic things that how could you have an army that doesn't listen to the general of the, of the country? But in the rest of the world, outside of Western Europe and, you know, North America and, you know, in kind of sort of other places, that's actually the norm. If you think back into ancient times, how often was there a coup when that one leader gave too much power to a general, then the general rose up, killed the leader, and then now I'm the leader, right? That's actually the common. That's the, that's the run through, actually. That's the more uh, narrative part. And uh, so, and, and that's what's happening to me here. Ukraine does not control all Ukrainian forces. And if people think that, 
again, read a history book because that's not how that works. I, I got a, I got a lot of hate in the comments on a short about this. <laughs> yes, I was did. talking about how how de- how uh, decentralized things seem to be and how factionalized seem to be, and I was just hypothecating on that. Yeah. And a Ukrainian yelling at me. I, I've I've been told uh, he's not Ukrainian, <laughs> but he's a, he's at least a volunteer that speaks a language. We've invited. I think it's a a, a, per, a man. I'm not sure, but we've invited him on the podcast. He's has yet to respond. He ghosted. Hmm. He, he did initially agree, <laughs> you know, but so it seems like you're substantiating that claim. That well, hundred percent. Well, it's just a, it's just the norm of how these things always that's work, happens. right? That's what happens. I'm not saying I'm not making a claim of knowledge that I know what's going on on the ground. Sure, I, I have no idea. But what I do know is, in in like the war in Syria, I once mapped it out for my students after reading an article. I had seven different colors of markers, and I was trying. Dash lines for support, direct lines in red for aggressive war, purple lines for for support, but not actually directly fighting. And I had, in the war in Syria, I had, uh, what was it, 47 different groups up on the board with lines interconnecting that when my, my teacher neighbor came over, he's like, you didn't like try to teach that to them, did you? And I was like, yeah, I did. It, it, <laughs> it proves like, the point, though. Yeah, but it, it proves my point now. I don't think anybody really understood what I was trying to get across at the time. Probably wasn't my best teaching moment, but uh, hey, man, they got the real deal. Hey, you got uh, you got to aim high, though. Yeah, yeah you yeah. do. It was a way too high. <laughs> that freshman history class was like, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. They were juniors. They were juniors. <laughs> but. Uh, no, I mean, so the reality is, is that's just so common in history where these factions break apart because they, they're not united. So, I mean, we think of cultural differences like, you know, religion, and we see them as very, very minuscule things, right? We often do in our society. Guys, we don't have to go very far where that is not the case. If you are not Catholic, you are, you're barely even a person. You're not, definitely not a citizen, right? In the case of, uh, you know, Eastern Europe. If you are not a certain branch of that Orthodox church, there's a different Orthodox church for most of the countries that they're in because they have like a bishop system. And it's kind of like, a, if I understand it correctly, which I don't, sorry, but it's like a more decentralized Vatican, right? And it's uh, in the countries that they're in. So, uh, you know, you have a decentralized way that way. So it becomes nationalistic, even the, the religious aspects of, of the same faith. So it, it makes a hundred percent sense what what uh, what, you, what you guys are saying about these factions breaking apart. That's that's has to be what happened. Something that something that you said earlier about uh, Russia going in and kind of expecting to get a bunch of people on on with them reminds me of what happened with Iraq. Wasn't that the situation in Iraq was like? Mm-hmm. We had like an insider guy that was like, "Trust me, we got all these like militia groups. They're gonna jump on board, and we're gonna have like awesome Iraqi freedom." Boom, nailed it. And then we went in and the guy and the guy turned out to be an Iranian spy, just kind of like luring people in or something. Wasn't that no, the story? It, wasn't that. It, it was it was the same guy who sold the Kuwait babies and incubator That's story. Right. Also sold the story that if we go into Iraq, there's going to be all these people who are going to the Kurds. Yeah. Who are going to welcome us and celebrate our coming and all that kind of stuff. And we're oh, going to join in to a liberal democracy because they were. No, well, I mean, the Kurds weren't totally no, bummed I, to see us. I mean, I'm sure no, no, they're, no, they're, they're they only the only bummed. factions who. Well, they, they've been bummed to see us at times and not bummed at yeah, other times. Yeah. <laughs> yes. right. But I mean, I know that's the case with the the Northern Alliance in Afghanistan, and then uh, and that's why uh, prior to 9/11, Al Qaeda uh, had uh, camera bombs actually 
and they blew up a couple of people. Mm. Uh, before before I forget, uh, to get the story on that cat, and I can't remember his name, and I can't remember exactly all the institutions in here, definitely check out Enough Already by... Um, Scott Horton. Scott Horton. Yeah, he's got all that information. I haven't there. read that it's one that yet, and I feel bad. I'm sorry, Scott, it's, if you're listening. It's quite I excellent. You, I know you are. <laughs> your other book, though. Oh, it's very good. Dude, good job. Well, um, safe to say you're probably thoroughly confused by a lot of this and that makes total sense because I think it really just does illustrate how completely confusing foreign policy is. It's all a shit show, right? It's just a complete shit show and there's so many factors. There's so many different pieces of the puzzle. It would be insane to think that you could un- fully understand it, uh, let alone act rationally in a situation such as this in Ukraine, in the Middle East or anything like that especially as a country where we have our own problems at home and there we have our own situations to consider and resolve here. And so if anything, if, if, if you take nothing else away from this really interesting and, and probably very surface level analysis of all these different cool, like foreign policy situations, just know that um, it's probably a case for not getting into really entangling situations in foreign countries. And we should probably pay more attention to what we're doing here in the United States and less to what's going on between several different factions in some country far away that probably has not very much to do with us and our way of life. Well, and there's there's something to say about that too as like a mechanism of control, of understanding, of like people at the top that are like, yes, we need to do this, rah, rah, war, they hate us for our freedoms, whatever, stuff like that, is like they're banking on the average citizen not understanding of like, okay, well, this is the Taliban and this is El Nusra Front and this is ISIS, you know, like they're banking on you not understanding the dynamics of this and then they can create a noble lie that is just like, and that's why we got to do this. Right. And I'm not saying that you guys didn't do a good job of explaining it because I did follow a lot of it, but I do think that there's just so much to it that it's just like, man, you really do need a, a degree in history or political science or you know you need to spend years studying this to really understand the depth of it mm. and no wonder why people kind of glaze over because it it's like there's just so much there it's hard it's hard to wrap your mind around all of it mm. but it's really important that we not you know forget about it or sh- shove it under the rug because this is the majority of what the united states budget is being spent on is military interventionism well the the, the best example of that right now is nikki haley running for president Right. Where it is. I mean, she is the neocon choice. Uh, She's out there saying, if we don't do this, Putin is Hitler and he will take over Europe. Like, like outright lies like that. We have no grounding in reality. We have no idea. She she has provided no evidence. If this was Trump saying that, it would say Nikki Haley claims without evidence that Trump, that he's capable of doing this because there isn't. What what evidence do they have that suggests that that's actually capable, a capability of the, of the Russian military or an aim or a goal or anything else other than her claiming it. Well, I oh, thought the case, uh, what, why what, didn't they invade Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, which were much stronger military targets, much better, because then you get more access to the Baltic Sea. Mm. You cut off any any support that's more direct line to Moscow and uh, um, what is that? I almost said Leningrad. What's it called now? History teacher. Sorry. Guys. <laughs> the well, one, the not one. a geography it's called teacher. Stalingrad now. Saint, Saint Petersburg. Saint Petersburg. <laughs> I got it. That's to the south. <laughs> I mean, and more, uh, to your point as well. You know, uh, every other breath, I feel like the neocons are also saying Russia is a paper tiger, and they don't. 
they don't have the military strength or the yeah. the unity in their in oh, their forces to accomplish any of this stuff. Putin simultaneously the most crazy person who ever lived, right? Or he's just he's an insane tyrant, and he's also mentally failing, and he's the most dastardly political devil <laughs> like, that ever existed at the same oh, time. Too. Did, right. did you guys see? Because did Chris Christie jump in the race? Or he was getting interviewed. Uh, I feel like he. I think he did. Yes. Yeah. Does, does anybody care? Does anybody also, care? also, also, <laughs> but, but, um, round, round up Mike Pence and uh, um, Colonel. Uh, Colonel West, West on, on the left, yeah. um, the which, uh, which I actually think is interesting <laughs> and I, I have thoughts on that. Sure. But uh, Chris Christie, like in an interview this week, he was he was basically he was in Trump's administration. And he's basically in their interview saying that, like, yeah, no, I told him he shouldn't be a Russian puppet. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that's basically the substance of the interview. Oh, <laughs> so you're like, Mr. President, I don't think you should be a Russian puppet, man. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a bad idea. <laughs> I, I think it's a bad idea that you should listen to Putin all the time, man. Like, that's basically basically what this interview was and so it just shows like the neocon wow. element but uh yeah. one, I, one of the things that i just absolutely despise is that as soon as you're trying to explain the actions and i feel like i'm taking crazy pills because it is the same thing with al-qaeda right like you're trying to explain like no there's reasons why they hate us it's not just freedom right it's because of interactions that we've had in the past it's because of history it's because of these things that have happened mm. and and then you're for some reason, some reason, then me, I'm a fan. I'm I'm a apologist for Al Qaeda, mm-hmm. right? In the same way that's like now I'm a fan of Putin because I'm like, he's doing these things for rational reasons that are completely wrong, and he's a bad guy, but he's doing these for reasons that that are directly tied to our actions abroad, and then you're like. So you like Putin? Why are you defend? <laughs> why, why are you defending him, Russell? Yeah, <laughs> makes yeah. No, zero sense. But yet we can we can go back in time and say, ooh, look, uh, in the 1930s, in the interwar period, these are the things that Hitler did, right? And these are the things that of why he did them, and they totally connected. Every every history book has this, like talking about the Weimar Republic, talking about you know the scapegoating of of, of picking Jews as these uh, reasons why they lost the First World War. Everyone's perfectly comfortable with that, and nobody's like, hey, textbook, why do you like Hitler? <laughs> <laughs> he's just a man McGraw that wanted Hill. He's just a Hill. Do you like do, do you like Stalin? Why, why are you explaining it so well? Huh? <laughs> why are you explaining it so well? You if, if you're if you're a detective and you're looking at a crime and you detect catch the killer, what do you need? Motive and motive. opportunity. Means, motive, and opportunity. Material evidence. Oh, ideally. I forgot what the means part. Yeah. So you have to be available to do it. You have to, a motive, a reason to do it. Um, the material evidence is you have to have like a how you did it, right? It's the candlestick in the library and you killed Colonel Custard, right? I never bought that. Mustard, candlesticks are so hard. What's that? You can't kill somebody with a candlestick. Well, not like the candle itself, with but that like the holder. Yeah, I get it. They're pretty heavy. Really? I mean, you know, oh. they make them out of all sorts of stuff. How many candlesticks do you have? <laughs> you, could, you could burn them. No, that's <laughs> exactly <laughs> what I mean. I don't have a lot of range of experience with that's candlesticks. True. Again, not the wax part, guys. The metal part. <laughs> you just driven it. Ow! You know, I never put uh, that together, man. <laughs> yeah, it's just not the wax part, guy. It's like, wouldn't the candle just break? <laughs> never really got just, that. It's burning up slowly. Ow! So there Putin was with the candlestick. God, <laughs> what like, was I talking about? I don't know, but we've foreign just policy has destroyed the same, all of our credibility. Foreign policy has the same thing. What you're trying to do is get the means, motive, and material evidence that actually help you understand the phenomenon so that then 
you can design strategies to push back on that phenomenon. For example, if you were to say in the ni- in the in in the early to uh, early 1990s, hey guys, if we keep our current policy in Iraq, perhaps it will inspire a bunch of people to attack us. People would be like, you're just apologizing for the you know Iranians or for whatever for Saddam Hussein or whatever. Rather than, rather than saying, okay, what is currently, what is the strategic analysis of the region and the incentives for people to hate America? And then how do we, how do we mitigate that as a foreign policy goal? And perhaps if, if that analysis was done and it was discovered that the starvation of 500,000 Iraqi children, as well as the actions of supporting of Israel and some of the bad things they've done, good things too, but they've done bad things. The support of Israel has inspired a lot of these people. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you would have stopped 9-11 before it could have happened. Now, a lot of people will strategize about how they could have stopped Hitler if they had just gone back and, you know, I don't know, killed him as a baby and or, you know, made different policy during the Weimar Republic or after uh, uh, the uh, the Paris Accords. Um, you know, if you if you you can you can do that and everyone's like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. But if you do that on 9-11, all of a sudden you hate America. Right. right. We don't like to take responsibility for our actions as a country. And like Jordan Peterson says, if you're going to change, you got to take responsibility first. And that's what we need to do as a country. Just a quick fact check. It's Munich. Munich. Oh, God. I was like, I, I, I looked at you when I said it because I was like, yeah, I was trying to say, right. I was trying to blink out Munich. Morse code agreement. Munich. Sorry. It's okay. After World War I. This is why every, every group, every podcast needs a historian. Absolutely. Just hanging out and be like, actually. Actually. <laughs> actually. <laughs> actually. Having <laughs> <even> glasses. <laughs> Well, guys, it's been a really great conversation. Anything left to add before we wrap it up? I really want to do the the youth one because I got oh. I got something I want to say. Oh, yeah, yep. this is a really great video. I'll cue it up while, right. while you guys, while you do the thing, Kyle. Uh, this is really great. So one of the reasons I want to talk about this is because uh, Russ's job he has to deal with these teenagers every single day. Get and to get to has to. Did I say has to? Yes, you did. Oh well, that shows you my mental model on teenagers. <laughs> my bad. My children are younger than that. Although I love my niece. Obviously, you're looking forward to it. Yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, ish. Uh, so <laughs> they're cool now anyways. Uh, and, and this phenomena of youth suicide, and I thought it was, it was really uh, awesome video. I'd love your response. All right, here we go. You got to unmute it, Holmes. Well, Kyle doesn't know how to use social media. And when you're a teenager, you're supposed to want to die, but that death is supposed to be metaphorical and spiritual. Your childhood has to die so you can become an adult. But nobody's told them it's metaphorical and spiritual, so they have this death urge that they then actualize in the physical world as opposed to through ritual or through maturity. I've often thought that it's similar, that you know, this culture is so wretched and so many people are so very, very unhappy. They want this nightmare to end, and they don't recognize that, that the death that they want is a cultural death and is a spiritual and metaphorical death, especially because within this culture, you know, the spirit is separated from the earth and from the flesh. And so, you know, you can't have this transformation that simply occurs in your body. And so they kill the world in all physical reality as opposed to that spiritual transformation. Thoughts? Yeah, so I mean, uh, I found myself very torn on what he's saying because in aspects, I, I see what he's saying is correct. As somebody who works with high schoolers constantly, um, that uh, 
they do they they need to find an identity and in order for that to happen other things need to fade to the background i think the pro the problem and how he talks about it is this very uh binary that things are alive and things are dead and that's not how that's not how you evolve i mean think about and so for me i was thinking about like my evolution into a man and my evolution into the different stages of my manhood into my life right and the things didn't die in me right things became less emphasized right the 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 characteristics i gained from my mother and and from my father and from my siblings they didn't they didn't die in me but they altered right and i think if you're talking about this and the dangerous thing is if you're talking about this is two there's twofold one you you're you're creating a, a a youth of rejection and i don't think that's necessarily a good thing i don't think people should reject things outright i think people should measure weigh and test things and then can decide for themselves so i think the idea that he's promoting ends up in a lot of rejection and a lot of this is not who i am and but this is who i am which teenagers very much struggle with they are you know you could consider almost similar to a bipolar person where it's like one day I'm this and then now I'm really an anime and that's all I am. And, and then the next day it's like, no, I'm, I'm not into that. And I'm into goth music and this is all who I'll ever be. And I love Anna and she's the one for me and they can't modulate. And that's what they're figuring out what to do. They're, they're figuring out how to take a little bit of a and a little bit of B and a, and a, a, a splash of C and then take away actually a little bit of B. That was a little bit too much. So I'm just going to, take away a little bit and you you do that through ritual and that's where i agree with this gentleman it seems like he's pointing to a more ritualistic and spiritual existence and i agree with him that that has died in our society and i'm very sad for that to me that's a very very negative thing and uh, that would be something that needs to be remedied um and so yeah i I found myself torn with it but i i like the idea i I think that's a lot of the reason because so much of our political culture now is wrapped up in identity. I'm this, I'm that. Right. And I think a lot of that is just people are kind of scapegoating things. They're trying to like figure it out. Like they're just like, I'm, I'm this, so I, I have to be this. And then they, they, and then they need you to justify it. So like everybody's like, it gets very preachy about it. And that's kind of like become such a big part of our cultural identity. It's like almost like high school is continuing to <laughs> go throughout uh, adulthood where everybody's like obsessed over of like, I am this thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been an observation that over time, childhood has gotten longer and longer. Right. And maybe a hypothesis is that that is continuing like that. I childhood is now until you're 28. Mm-hmm. or something like that where people have that's very, my age man <laughs> welcome to adulthood <laughs> am i an adult now <laughs> <laughs> sorry sorry you're an early mature um what i mean is that there's maybe 20 is not the right one i'm just I, another. i mean I, like call, college in a lot of ways for a lot of people is just extended childhood right? right like like some people will use it for like actual educational purposes and stuff like that but a lot of it's just childhood extended really with alcohol yeah well and seeing this uh, this gets to a symptom another symptom that i think is problematic is that often people look at your teenage years and they look at that time of life and they see it as this transition that was like this necessary evil and it had these really deeply bad things but maybe these good things too that were sprinkled in maybe but the reality is is you're not fundamentally that different from what you were in high school you just hide it better right 
you you've you've been socialized more <laughs> and you figured out different parts that it's like okay you know when i walk into the party i don't have to do a kickstand immediately <laughs> i can do it second then <laughs> right and you you figured out little little tips and tricks into fitting better into what you want and what those things are. And I think that's what we need to have. I think you do need to transition from, from proper childhood into young adulthood. I think that's sociologically very, very well established in most hunter gatherer societies and most long, uh, you know, long, long surviving societies. But I don't see that's what he's talking about. He's well, talking I about think, adulthood. I, th- proper. I think he's actually talking about that too, right? I think so. Yeah, I, oh. I, I, I got that sense that that's why teenagers specifically are the ones that are kind of in this transition where they're de-emphasizing childhood and trying to adopt, you know, adult responsibility, but they're not being told that that's a spiritual action, right? Yeah. Uh, and so therefore, they're kind of taking it on their physical as. And that being some kind of underlying psychological driver of the suicide issue with teenagers. Carl Jung had a concept called uh, persona possession. And the general idea of it was that at a young age, you learn to adopt these masks so that you can properly, you know, engage with society. It's Mm kind of like, you know, this is this mask for this moment. This is this mask for this moment. But then a lot of people kind of forget that they're wearing the mask and then they forget to kind of like peel it off at times and kind of remember who they actually are and and then people become possessed by whatever mask they've kind of claimed as their own even and that's not really them so they're kind of like they become trapped by that that was kind of making me think of that old carl jung thing right interesting concept and i i think that at least with my personal experience with working with teenagers it seems pretty true they do you are constantly trying things in those those trying things, I think to me, what where where I see kids go wrong is when they are they 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 take things from the past, they take things from their parents, and they reject them so hard that when they take the mask off, I mean, yeah. continue with the analogy, they rip off a part of their face, hmm. and it's a part of them that's actually them, and it's something that they believe in and they have because I think we have devalued belief so thoroughly in our society because of the dogma of scientism that uh, anytime we touch on belief, people, well, that's just your belief. That's just subjective, right? And so devalued that uh, if you have belief in, everyone does. That's the dirty secret. Everyone has a bias. Everyone has belief. Mm-hmm. And if if you do, it's this devalued thing. It's like, well, that's no, just you. and you know, you, That's not something that's important. <coughs> Pardon me. Ooh. Way to interrupt the moment. Sorry, man. <laughs> I really tried to hold it back. It's all I that totally vaping agree. you're doing. No, come on. I got to throw the, you under the bus. There's the cultural death too component of that I thought was funny. Uh, the cultural death element of that, that there's like, we're talking about institutions and how institutions themselves need to transform over time and how they need to die off. And that there's like this hesitancy that people have, like that perhaps in the past we had institutions that were more accepting of this, that you were a thing. And now you're not that thing anymore. And we're going to recognize that and like kind of reinforce a new set of norms based upon you're now a man. You're 13. Here's your bar mitzvah. Or right. hazing rituals with tribes and things like that. Right. right? Things so, like that. So, we, but we don't have that for our, the Fed. You know? <laughs> or, you know, the <laughs> Oh, I would love agencies. to haze uh, Jerome Powell. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. What I mean is like a, a way to think about that institutions aren't necessarily permanent and that they need to, they need to have a purpose and then die off and, 
there is no thing that allows these institutions to die off. If you want something to be immortal, just make it a government program. Yeah, like that's the Milton Friedman quote, right? Is there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. That's Ronald Reagan, actually. No, it's Milton. Pretty oh, sure it's it? Milton. It's oh. Milton. But no, I and I uh, you know, and I get a little stuck there because I you know, I view myself kind of like a an old old school naturalist. I, I don't like to always think of myself as a historian because I love so many other topics and fields as well. But um to me, like this, this screams like one of the solutions and what David's kind of pointing out there is like the old school naturalist position, which you would take, you would say, okay, so what did, what did, what do human beings do in general? And so you look and take the sociological view and you would, you'd figure out, okay, so generally we transition at this point of puberty and then you're a man. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want 14 year olds to vote. Right. <laughs> and that sounds I'm not, I'm not sure I want 21-year-olds. <laughs> uh, uh, that's, that's what I was trying to tap into. And so, and so I think in one element that I, I would say that what we need to do is we need to be very, very aware of the institutions we create. Hmm. And we need to create belief-based insti- institutions. And I don't necessarily mean religion. I mean things that you believe in and you value that signify the transition for people to say, you're no longer a kid, you're a young adult. You're no longer a young adult. You're an adult adult. And we don't even have good words for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the, uh, you know, the creation of those, I think we, we need to take further steps. The, the, the answer isn't backwards. The answer is forwards. The answer is to evolve. And uh, I think the devaluing of belief fundamentally is the issue that I see there. Mm-hmm. It's a spiritual trans- transition that people don't recognize is there because it's spiritual and you can't do that. Yeah. Woo-wee. So I, I do want to know too that when we're talking about institutions, we include voluntary institutions. We include taking institutions that are currently non-voluntary and making them voluntary. And that is the opportunity of the moment is that we have this moment of death of these vol- involuntary, corrupt, ossified institutions in our culture that can be revivified in private institutions that are voluntary, that serve the, you know, serve the common good and do a better job about having the appropriate incentives in order to exist and serve the larger society, like any institution, like your business or like your family or like anything else. Uh, you as an individual serve the common society by our harmonious interest of your behavior and how you actualize the real world. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I do want to note too, like I think the, I totally agree with you, Russ. I, I think there's the, the next step is to move forward, not necessarily back. But we use the back the, the past as a reference, right? Yeah. So if you're if you're a parent and your and your kid is turning that 11, 12, 13, 14 years old age, and they're going into that phase, and if you want to inoculate your kid against the kind of pressures of the outside world, you know what does that look like? What are the sort of rituals that you can build as a family that help inoculate that so that they can grow up to be a kind of whole rounded human being who's capable of engaging, engaging with the world like an adult. I'm trying to think of the guy's name, Steve Rinella, mm-hmm. the meat eater guy. Yeah. Uh, his book on rearing children had a section of it that kind of tapped onto that real briefly. No, it did. Yeah. It touched on it, I think. Mm. And uh, it's a, it's a good idea because, you know, he's talking about engaging in kids. The book's all about engaging your kids in wild spaces. And it's just, it's a good book. It's a great book. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, I think that has an element of it, right? The, uh, so if you're kind of a naturalist family, you know, I think you should engage in the wilderness in a special way that'll symbol, the, that'll be a symbol and a meaningful experience to transition them 
from where they are into this next stage of life. In the same way, you have a wedding, right? You're transitioning from the solo person to this merged person, right? And that's a meaningful thing. In the same way, you have, uh, you know, graduations and those things, but often they're tropes now. They're silly. They're not. They're not meaning. They've lost all meaning. Yeah, I think they can. I think they can, but you have to. You have to. Fu- you have to create one. Yeah, no, like they, they've just become like things that you just do. Like mm-hmm. the meaning has been stripped away from them. Like yeah. it's just like I just feel like this is what I'm supposed to do at this time. And, and, time, and, and yeah. nobody like kind of like meditates on what that actually means and kind of integrates no one even it never into explains their life. It to them, right? Which which is maybe is like you know the marriage just as an example. Maybe that's a reason why the divorce rates are so crazy right now is because like people aren't actually integrating the values of that tradition into their actual life, and it just kind of becomes a thing you do, right? Yeah. So like yeah. people aren't as a as a um, committed to it, I guess, or, or I, I don't know what you would describe it as. Possibly. Um, I, I think, I think the important thing, and when I think about this, I'm mainly focused on youth is for me, it's like, it's uh, you know, my, my seniors just graduated. Right. And I remember my first year that I had these kids from freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, I sat in the back and I like got teary eyed. I was like, man, why am I so emotional right now? I'm like sensitive. Like my buddy was all joking with me and kind of being like, like, oh, this system sucks. And I was like, shut up, man. You can't talk bad about this. So I was like overly defensive about something I don't even care about. And what I had realized is that the, I had this symbolism of them moving on into adulthood and beyond my tutelage that was super, super deep. And I had realized in that moment, I never gave that to them. Because they just saw me and they're like, I'm graduating. I have a diploma now. <laughs> like, you know, they were like, but, but I'm like sitting there like, this is beautiful. Well, it's the same thing as like, like in African tribes, they would have, they would have these rituals where it's like, once you became 13 or whatever age it was, you know, like you'd have all like the adults put on these like horrifying masks and stuff like that. Mm. And like the, 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 the young man would have to like fight off the monsters. And it's like symbolizing as like, yeah, you're, you're no longer a child anymore. You're, you, you have to go out there and fight your fears and you have to beat up the monsters. And they would like haze the young man with, you know, these monster costumes, <laughs> costumes basically. And it's like, well, once you fight back, is like okay you're a man now and like this is your moment right mm. so, yeah. I fully support integrating that into western let's culture. just bring it back let's bring, <laughs> let's it, bring back. it back <laughs> I'm down <laughs> that was a great ending yeah yeah, yeah. I'm glad we were ended with that video me yeah. too me too well thank you guys very much for a great conversation Russ thanks so much for joining us today for two shows Woo. history Marathon. stick and on Instagram history stick I forgot to say it earlier History underscore S H T I C K. History stick. History stick. It's a mouthful. <laughs> Thanks Gotta again. Use that Yiddish. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Gotta do it. Kyle, thank you, sir. Of course. Appreciate it. Evan, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Wherever you are watching or listening to this, we do appreciate a follow, a like, and all that lovely stuff. And we appreciate you for watching. See you next time. See you. Thanks for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. For more episodes, news, and Liberty-focused content, visit libertyportal.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you liked what you heard on the show, we appreciate you sharing it with your friends and giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice.